There's a lot of stories in this section, uh, 26 to 29 especially, more or less dated stories, events. All of these that are more in story form, I think, are cool. You know, you can see the, the situation. So, 26 verses 1 to 6. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house, and speak to all the cities of Judah, who have come to worship in the Lord's house, and all the words that I have commanded you to speak to them. Do not omit a word. Perhaps they will listen, and everyone will turn from his evil way, that I may repent of the calamity which I am planning to do to them, because of the evil of their deeds. And you will say to them, Thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me, to walk in my law which I have set before you, to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I have been sending to you again and again, but you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh, and this city I will make a curse to all the nations of the earth. Okay. When was this? The beginning. Of? Jehoiakim. These are not chronological order, guys. Jehoiakim... Um, was son of who? Jehoahaz? No, brother of Jehoahaz. Son of Josiah. Josiah. So we're looking, Josiah died tragically when Pharaoh Necho killed him. And the people put his son Jehoahaz in as king. That lasted for three months until the Egyptians came through and deported him back to Egypt and put his brother Jehoiakim in on the throne. So this is near the beginning of Jehoiakim's reign. There is one event from Jehoiakim's reign that I remember most. Is there one thing that stands out to you that Jehoiakim did? We haven't come to it here in Jeremiah yet. But what do we remember him for? A particular instrument that he uh, wielded to ill effect. Wasn't he the guy who had the words of God? Yes! Baruch and Jeremiah had written down his prophecies. They were announced... And they were eventually announced to Jehoiakim, and he just takes them, and piece by piece, he cuts them off the scroll and throws them into the fire. <laughs> That's what I remember about Jehoiakim. Not a real good guy. <laughs> you know, not very uh, spiritually minded, you might say. Well, God's sending Jeremiah to preach in Jehoiakim's day. And in verse 2, where was he supposed to go to preach? Which would be the temple. temple. And what's he supposed to preach there? Everything. All the words I command you. Now notice in the end of verse 2, do not omit a word. Now, if I say, now you are to do all of this and do not leave any of it out. What are you assuming? It's important. Well, why would I say don't omit a word? It's not pleasant. Yeah, there must be something about that that, you know, I'm going to want to hold back. You know, I say, now, don't you leave any of this off. 
I'm gathering there's some parts of that you might not want to do. What what would be a motivation for Jeremiah to want to omit some of those words? Exactly. Some of the words are not going to create a favorable response on the part of his uh, hearers. And so we're tempted to sort of pull our punches, to soften things down, to make them sound better. You know, this is probably an insight into how challenging it was to deliver some of these difficult prophecies. We're all, when we try to, you know, teach or or speak the message of God to somebody, what are we often worried about? Offending them. Offending them, yes. Now when we say in that, we don't want to offend them, we really mean by that we don't want to hurt their feelings, make them not like us. You know, offending somebody in that sense is not like doing something that is hurting them. Like it, it's, not a, it's not trying to damage them. It may actually be trying to help them, but they're not going to like it. And of all things, we want people to like us. You know, uh, the, the cardinal rule of uh, our society is you must not upset anyone. You've always got to say and do things that people think are nice. Well, some of these judgment prophecies are very nice, the way we define that. And so it's a temptation for even a Jeremiah not to really preach it, not to preach all of it, to kind of water it down, or just kind of not to say some things. You know, he said, you can't trim this message to make it more attractive. (laughs) you got to preach it just like it is. That's our challenge. Is it that hard to say something about God to people around us? I don't think so. You can say something about God, it's okay. You know, but you preach everything in the Bible? Whoa, that's tough. And so that's where Jeremiah was at. He's, now, now look at God's hope. God's hope in verse 3 is that by preaching this, people repent and the calamity wouldn't come. Now, if you teach, if you warn people that what they're doing is wrong, is that a really hateful thing to do? You know, we wouldn't think that, that was true about anything else. You know, if you warn people that their house is on fire and they really need to get out, do we consider that to be a really rude thing to do? Well, not as long as it's true. <laughs> You know, if the house is really on fire, yes, that's an upsetting message. People really don't like to hear that. (laughs) But on the other hand, if it is, it's actually a very nice, you know, mannerly thing to do, you know, to warn them about that, right? You know, do you really love to hear the doctor say, it's cancer? But if it is, what about a doctor who's just too nice to tell you the truth? You know, well, that's not the kind of doctor you want, John. Uh, I think it's really cool. Uh, Mr. Tom Holly would say that a negative and a positive make an absolute, and that when God says that you are to do this and you are not to do this, saying the exact same thing, but in a positive and a negative sense, uh, that's something that God's really trying to stress to us, the importance of doing this. 
And so I think that's really cool just to show the importance. Yes, yeah, speak it all, don't leave anything out. Yeah, see, he says it both, both ways. Good boy. Yeah, and that's our challenge. Do we have the right to... Well, that part I'm not going to say. If God sends a message, he wants it all taught. And for us to leave off some things because, well, they wouldn't like that very well. Well, often we're leaving off the very part that they need to hear. You know, here's the doctor. He's a very positive, non-offensive doctor. He does extensive tests and he says, well, I want to tell you, your heart is in great shape. (laughs) Well, that's nice. But if you got cancer of the liver, the fact that your heart's in great shape is really not the important news. Okay, give a comprehensive report. Your heart's good, but your liver's not. But to just tell the part about your heart and not tell the part about your liver, now that's really irresponsible. That's not warning you so that you can get ready to die or so that you can get ready for chemo or surgery or whatever else that's necessary. Don't omit it. Okay, so tell them the positive, but tell them the negative too. That's what he's telling Jeremiah. You go and you preach all of this to the people. You know, and you say to them, if you will listen, well, verse 6, that I will make this house like Shiloh. And this city I will make a curse to all the nations of the earth. Now, you know anything about Shiloh? What's Shiloh? Yeah, back in what era? Uh, Saul. Even before Saul. Joshua. Joshua, maybe early uh, uh, First Samuel. Remember who would go up to Shiloh every year to worship? Samuel's parents. Yeah, that's where uh, Hophni and Phineas were, the sons of Eli. And uh, you remember who defeated the Israelites in that period of time? The Philistines. And what did they actually take? They captured the Ark of God. And I'm guessing they destroyed Shiloh. That's my guess. We don't read about Shiloh being the place where the Ark was after that. So probably, so if he says, I'm going to make Jerusalem like Shiloh, ooh, that doesn't sound very good. You know, and he said, I'm going to make your, you know, I'll make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. Now, you remember Genesis 12, the people that bless you, I will bless. The people who curse you, I will curse. Well, now they become a curse. And to say they become a curse is saying something like this. If, if you wanted to curse your enemy, you'd say, may you be like Jerusalem. That would be a curse. That's what you'd wish for your worst enemy. May you be a curse. Comments or thoughts on that? That's the message. Don't leave any of it off. Questions, thoughts, comments? Okay. Yes. You that to me, but, um, like the fact that it used to be where they worshipped God. Didn't they sometimes say about Jerusalem, like, oh, like nothing's going to happen to Jerusalem because the temple is here and like this is where we worship God. Yes. But like it has happened before the city where God's name was, was destroyed. So you're not exempt just because the temple is there. Yes, good point. That That is really a key element of that. That the fact that, you know, God had previously destroyed the place where he dwelt, 
means that Jerusalem could be destroyed. Yeah, great point, great thought. Other comments. That's the message he's supposed to preach right there in the temple. Well, how about uh, seven, let me see here, seven through, uh, seven to fifteen. The priest. <laughs> so the pre- priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. Now it happened when Jeremiah had made an end of speaking, all the Lord had commanded him to speak for all the people, that the priests and prophets, all the people, seized him, saying, You will surely die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate without an inhabitant? inhabitant. And all the people were gathered against Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. And when the princes of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord, and sat down at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. And all the priests and all the prophets spoke to the princes and all the people, saying, This man deserves to die, for he has prophesied against the city, as you have heard with your ears. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the princes and all the people, saying, the Lord sent me to prophesy against this house, against this city, with all the words that you have heard. Now therefore amend your ways and your doings, and obey the voice of the Lord your God. Then the Lord will relent concerning the doom that he has pronounced against you. As for me, here I am in your hand. Do with me, do with me as seems good and proper to you. But know for certain that if you put me to death, you will surely bring innocent blood on yourselves, on this city, and on its inhabitants. For truly, the Lord has sent me to you to speak all these words in your hearing. All right, in seven, the priests, the prophets, and all the people, Jeremiah finishes speaking. What, are, what is their decision about Jeremiah? Season killed. He must die. What? What's his crime? <laughs> Them. Yeah, preaching a message of judgment against Jerusalem. That's the crime. You're not allowed to do that. <laughs> you know, you can't say that we're going to be lost. You can't say God will judge people who do this or that. What would we call it today if you said that? But a hate crime. <laughs> You know, it almost be like that. It was automatically considered to be wrong to prophesy that God would judge Jerusalem. They might should have considered, well, is it true? It would be like saying that that it's automatically a uh, a, a crime for a doctor to say you have cancer. Is that a crime? Not if it's true. If the tests indicate that, how is that a crime? It's actually a blessing. But that's what they're saying. Death sentence. You prophesied that that this house would be like Shiloh. Death sentence. It's interesting. This is kind of a trial. But this is a trial where they've issued the sentence before they have the <laughs> You know, they know what the outcome is going to be. Now what's the evidence to support it? And so, 
you know, the officials and everybody comes up and, and verse 11, a death sentence for this man, for he has prophesied against this city as you've heard in your hearing. The evidence is he prophesied against this city to prophesy against Jerusalem for them means he's a false prophet. Period. End of story. What's Jeremiah's defense? I, God sent me. Yeah, he told me to. <laughs> That's a pretty good defense, I think. And you need to repent. You need to amend your ways so he won't do it. But as for me, well, whatever. Do what you want to. But, you know, you're going to pay. You're, you'll be shedding innocent blood if you kill me. But, it, but it's, it's up to you. You know, Jeremiah is willing to more or less surrender his person to the will of the court. You can do to me what you want to. There will be consequences. That's between you and God. But here's the message. And the best thing for you guys to do would be to take this as an opportunity for you to repent and for these things not to happen to you. That's really the best thing. Now, I like Jeremiah's manner in this. What do you see good about the way Jeremiah... Um, you know, operates here. Doesn't back out. He is very persistent. You know, he doesn't change the message because people didn't like to hear it. <coughs> he doesn't say, oh no, they didn't like it. What did I do wrong? What did I say wrong? We have got to get over this deal of thinking that we messed up because they didn't like it. God didn't say everybody's going to like his message. Has everybody ever liked God's message? Maybe one time in history where everybody liked his message except Adam and Eve before the tree incident. You know, that's pretty much the only time I can think of. Maybe Noah and his family before the drunken incident. You know, I mean, people don't like it a lot of times. doesn't prove anything. doesn't mean you're right or you're wrong or whatever. You know, you're right if you're preaching God's message. So they don't like it. Jeremiah just persists in, in preaching it. What else do you like about how Jeremiah does this? Go on. He doesn't get personally defensive. He just he doesn't try to justify or whatever. He just states that this is what God said, so that's what I have to say. And whatever happens to me, so be it. You really appreciate like his calmness, almost matter-of-factness in this. I mean, he doesn't really have any role other than announcing the message. So he announces it. There's no particular heroics or theatrics or, you know, anything. It's, it's, it's humble, bold, direct testimony. He just announces the message. That's what God's going to do. That's what he does. That's what our role is. When we teach people, what, what are we trying to do? Trying to show them what the Bible says. Trying to show them what God's will is. We would encourage them to obey it, just as Jeremiah does here. Please change so this doesn't come upon you. But ultimately, his role is just delivering the message. He does it. He does it faithfully. He's fulfilled the mission God gave him. Thoughts or comments on this? Obviously, we have to make that same. We can't be these people when Jeremiah comes to us. And it's so easy to be dependent and say, well, I'm a Christian, and how dare you say that to me? When what we need to do is look at the message and say, does it really apply to me? It's a great point. You ever become defensive? Some Christian brother or sister? Yeah, exactly. Do we become offended? We get our feelings hurt? Maybe it's an elder? 
Maybe it's our parents, if they're telling us the truth, then they're Christians. Maybe it's another brother or sister of our own age, and they say, look, this is not right what you're doing. This is not right what you're saying. And we get mad about it. That's dumb. It's like getting mad at the doctor who says you have cancer. If you have cancer, you need to know. Don't get mad at the doctor. It wasn't his fault. And especially when it comes to moral things, it's not the fault of the person who's telling you. It's your own fault. That's what we don't like to hear. We don't like to know it's our own fault. But, you know, Proverbs talks a lot about how you receive rebuke. Brendan? And were these, like, priests and stuff, I mean, were they actually like, worshiping the temple? Worshiping the temple? I don't know. I mean, not worship, like, are they worshiping God? Like, are they... Theoretically, yeah. I mean, probably not exclusively <coughs> God. But, yeah, they continued to worship God even when they worshiped okay. other gods. Yeah. So that's typical in the religious world. They like the idea of relationship with God. When actually follow Him, that's the part they don't like. <laughs> yeah, it, everybody's serving the Lord. Yeah. You know, everybody loves God. These were God's own people. This was Jerusalem, this was the temple, this was the sacrifice to God and all that. And you're exactly right. People, you know, pacify their conscience because, oh yeah, oh, I'm a Christian. You know, anybody who's not a Christian, I mean, there's a handful of Muslims and a few atheists. But mostly, everybody's a Christian. If you ask them, are you a Christian? Oh yeah, I'm Christian. They don't say, I'm a Christian, I'm, I'm Christian, you know. But, but pretty much most people say that. I mean, a good percentage of people in our area, though they might not use this word, would say, I'm evangelical. Or, you know, so they, that concept, if they don't know the word evangelical, you know. I mean, if you said, are you a Bible-believing Christian? I think in this area, a majority of people would say yes. They may, do it. they may be living with their girlfriend and doing all sorts of stuff. But, oh yeah, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. You know, pretty much everybody is. Doesn't mean anything. That these will choose. Oh yeah, they're serving the Lord, and so that is hard for them to hear a message that you're doing wrong. Because after all, I'm a, I'm a Christian. Chris, well, that's the problem that I'm in with us today. It's when somebody comes and tells you something. First of all, it's not true. You know, that's why. <laughs> that's why you're defensive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, their initial response. Well, it's not true. So kill him. <laughs> And that's what we do when people come up. Well, how dare you? Because that's not true. Instead of thinking about, you know, even considering the possibility. It is really hard. Man, there have been times when people have come to me and they have told me, you're wrong in this, this wasn't the right thing to do. Oh, man. You're, I mean, everything inside of you just bristles up. You know, even, you know what happens to me? Somebody says to me, uh, I need to talk to you. <laughs> you know, immediately. <laughs> you know, you said something. And, uh, no, no, what? You know, I, no, I don't, I don't want to hear this. You know, why do we do that? <clears throat> if we did the wrong thing or said the wrong thing or aren't doing the thing we ought to do, really, we need to hear it. Really, we ought to seek to hear it. But boy, that is hard. You know, and so we've really got to soften our heart and think about that differently. It's a good challenge. Other thoughts, good comments. Might help to go into that with an attitude of thinking, even before anybody's ever said anything to you, how will I respond to that? And one good way is to thank them and to praise them for having the courage to do that. So think about that in advance. Next time somebody comes to you, okay, what am I going to say? I know this had to be hard for you. You did a great job. Thank you. I mean, really, that that would be a uh, difficult thing for them. 
Absolutely, it is. And, and more than likely shows that they care about you and that they care about trying to be faithful to what the Lord wants them to do. What if they're wrong? You know, what if, no, it's real, they, they didn't really understand what you did. They didn't really understand the scriptures in that point or whatever. Even if they're wrong, it's really handy for you to know how they feel and what, what they think. That may help you in working with them. And they may not be wrong the next time. So if you take their head off this time, the next time when they, do, when they are right, they're sure not going to talk to you about it. And then you sort of get a, a reputation. Do you know people that you better not say anything to? Yes. What do we call people like that? They're really what? Thin skin. What are synonyms for that? They're really sensitive. We got a colloquial thing we say even more than that. They're really what? Touchy? Do we still use that? You know, it's like you just have to be really careful. You say anything to them? Whoa. You know, so you just really tread lightly. You know, you just kind of like walk on that eggshells, trying to make sure you're really nice to them, and you try to make sure you don't say anything that might be interpreted negatively. Well, those poor people, they're not getting the benefit of hearing warnings and exhortations and advice that they need. Do you want to have that kind of reputation? Do you want to kind of be the kind of person that, well, you don't want to say anything to Gary. You know, don't you ever contradict him. Because, man, if you do, you'll never hear the end of it. You know, he'll hold, he'll hold a grudge, he'll blow up. You know, or do you want to be the kind of person that, that you know, it's a reputation. If you say something to them, they're going to thank you. They're going to appreciate you. They're going to talk to you about how much courage you had and how much they appreciated it, even if they ultimately end up saying, you know, I don't think that was the right advice. It won't always be. But at least they had the courage to tell you, and the next time it might be. Really good things to think about. Dog. The other thing is, when we're the one going to that person, I mean, Jeremiah was getting this directly from God, and none of us is getting that. So we could have the facts mixed up or whatever. So we need, you know, not go in with the sword and whack their heads off. <laughs> we need to go in with the, well, this is what I understand what's going on here. I'm concerned about it, and not just assume everything is as bad as you think it is. Excellent point. Yeah, there's a couple of things in that. Second Timothy two the last three or four verses talks about how the servant of the Lord needs to be gentle and is trying to recover people who've been overtaken by the devil's traps. And so you're gently trying to release the person from the trap. You know, your enemy isn't the person. Your enemy is Satan. And so you're trying to help the person get released from that. That mentality helps. The other thing is there is a difference between my judgment about something and the word of the Lord about something. What Jeremiah affirmed very boldly and strongly was what God's words were. And when it comes to what God says, well, we've got to be very bold and direct. When it comes to how we see what they did or our judgment about what the best thing would be, that's not the same thing as God's word. 
we may give our judgment. We may see, say, in my, the way I look at this, I think this would be better. But we wouldn't say that with the same conviction as saying, this is just what the Bible says. Here it is. Look at this. This is God's word. So, you know, we do have to be have some cautions as the one who's doing the correcting and try to do it in the proper way. Our bigger challenge sometimes is to be willing to speak the word when we really think it's going to offend somebody and going to hurt their feelings. Often that's our bigger challenge unless we're aggravated. If we're aggravated, watch our attitude. If we're more worried about what they're going to think about us, be bolder. We almost need to do the opposite of what we feel. When we want to shrink back, we probably need to press forward. When we want to press forward, we may need to caution ourselves a little bit. Other thoughts? Good discussion. All right. 26, 16 to 19. Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and to the prophets, No death sentence for this man. For he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Then some of the elders of the land rose up and spoke to all the assembly of the people, saying, Micah or Moresheth prophesied in the days of Moresheth, sorry, prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and he spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus the Lord of hosts has said, Zion will be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem become ruins, and the mountain of the house of the high places of a forest. Did Hezekiah king of Judah and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And the Lord changed his mind about the misfortune which he had pronounced against him. But we are committing a great evil against ourselves. Were you expecting this? Well, what happens here? <clears throat> change your heart. Yeah, because... They believe Jeremiah. Who? Yeah. It appears to me a little different group leading this than verse 7, the priests and the prophets. These may be more the governmental <laughs> officials, but looks to me like the people switch sides. You know, led by these officials, now the people, okay, yeah, that's right. You know, people are fickle. <laughs> and sometimes it depends on who talked to them last. But these officials, I think they have a very good um, approach. Now, remember, verse 8, the priests and prophets, you must die. Verse 11, a death sentence for this man. The officials with the people say to the priests and the prophets in 16, no death sentence for this man. Why not? Exactly. He told us God's message. So they dared to stand up and defend Jeremiah. They've got a great argument on their side. What's the argument they use? This has happened before. There was that time back about a hundred years before, maybe a hundred and few years before, when what happened? Micah said the same thing. Micah said practically the same thing in the days of King Hezekiah. And King Hezekiah and the people repented. 
repented and didn't try to hurt uh, Micah. And as a result of their repentance, God relented. God chose not to bring the judgment against them. So they cite prophetic precedent. You know, there was that time a hundred years ago when Micah said about the same thing, Hezekiah led the people to repent and no calamity came. What do you think about that? That's pretty good. I don't know many cases like this, but this is encouraging that they spared Jeremiah because some bold officials stuck up for him. You know, we shouldn't get mad at him. We need to listen to him like they did back in Micah's day. I believe this is the only time in the Old Testament that another prophecy is quoted with the name of the prophet attached. You know, we're like one prophet just, or one, some prophet is actually cited by name, citing Micah by name and giving the quotation. And you can find that quotation. I think that's Micah 3.12. So you can go back to Micah 3.12 and you actually see it. That's exactly what Micah said. And, uh, and Hezekiah listened. Micah prophesied basically in the same time period as what other great prophet? Isaiah. Isaiah, yeah. Micah and Isaiah were very parallel. So if you have a hard time remembering Micah, think about what Isaiah said. That's pretty much what Micah says in summary. Thoughts and comments on this uh, defense of Jeremiah here? One thing that's interesting to note in the book of Micah, we don't know that the people repented. You're right. It takes a uh, hundred years later for us to find out that they repented. You're right. Though we do see in the historical books Hezekiah overall listening to Isaiah and making some pretty good improvements. Other thoughts? It just goes to show that even though, like, when Micah was preaching this, the people refused to listen. But then a hundred years later, they realized, oh, you know, he was right. And well, no, he's, they're saying that, that people listen even in Micah's day. Yeah. Yeah, but like they remember what he said because they repented and it didn't happen. Exactly. And so now they're like, okay, so if that happened, maybe we should do the same. Right, exactly, exactly. So they're citing a case of people listening to the prophets and that helping the situation in the past to say, you know, that'd be a good idea for us also. Sometimes, I think it's interesting that the people switch sides. You know, it's all the people on the one side, now all the people on the other side. Sometimes what it takes is somebody willing to stand up. Somebody willing to speak up and say, hey, you know, this is the way it ought to be, don't? That's what I was going to say for, for us, our application Maybe we're not the one that goes to talk to somebody about a problem, but when they refuse to listen, maybe we're the one that needs to come in like these princes and say, you know, he's telling me the truth. I mean, even a preacher might say something that really gets people stirred up. But if if a few people will say, you know, he's telling us the truth here, that could swing things. That's exactly right. That's, that's a very good point. I mean, we, there, there's a great need for people to, to support the truth and, and to, to encourage people. Wait a minute. Let's Somebody rethink this. to speak it, but then other people have to come behind and support it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, good point. This is a really good case study here. I mean, it, you really see a lot of things just in this event, good applications for us. So what will you do? You know, will you just hang the guy out to dry that told the truth, or will you come behind and, and support him. I mean, um, 
this might be a good illustration. I won't go into this in detail because I don't think it matters right now. But there's a situation in Brazil with basically three boys in a family that are like 24, 21, and 17, and their parents are divorced, their mother betrayed their father and is married to the man she had the affair with. She was withdrawn from by a church. This is when the boys were quite a bit younger. As they have gotten older, particularly the two older ones, as they've gotten older, they have taken um, stronger positions on some social aspects of the withdrawal. And and uh, uh, the middle boy was telling me about something the older boy had done in talking to his mother. His mother pressed him on some points. And he took a very strong stand on what he was going to do right then and what he'd do in the future until she repented. And and the middle boy was writing this to me and he said, you know, I felt like I needed to support him in what he said. We're both trying to do the same thing and trying to help our mother and respect the scriptures, so I thought it was important that I make sure I didn't undermine him but that I supported what he said. I thought that was very important. That was a helpful point. Sometimes it's not just the guy who's out on the point, but their mother needed to see, no, it's not just him. You know, others are in the same position. They want the same thing, and they will support the guy who's making the hard decision. That's kind of difficult. Sometimes somebody stands up for a principle of truth, and they're getting crucified. You know, what's going to happen if I stand up for them? Well, what may happen if I stand up for them? There's a bunch of other people who felt the same way, but they were afraid to. What may happen is they say, you know, that's right, which is exactly what happens here. Other thoughts? Okay, uh, 20 to 24. Indeed, there was also a man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah the son of Shemaiah, from kiriath Jerem. And he prophesied against this city and against this land words, uh, words similar to, the, to all those of Jeremiah. When King Jehoiakim and all his mighty men and all the officials heard his word, and the king sought to put him to death, but Uriah heard it, and he was afraid and fled and went to Egypt. Then King Jehoiakim sent men to Egypt, Elnathan, the son of Akbor, and certain men with him went into Egypt, and they brought Uriah from Egypt and led him to King Jehoiakim, who slew him with a sword and cast his dead body into the burial place of the common people. But the hand of Ahikam, Ahai the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah, so he was not given into the hands of the people to put him to death. Okay, so uh, Uriah <laughs> prophesied, and... Um, you know, a similar situation. This is telling us about a parallel case. He prophesied against this city, against this land, words similar to those of Jeremiah. Uh, Jehoiakim and all these guys tried to kill him. When Uriah heard it, what did Uriah do in that situation? Ran away to Egypt. Egypt. Jehoiakim sent officials down to Egypt. And what did they do? They brought, brought him back. There's a word we have for that. When a nation gives a criminal back up to the country that's trying to prosecute it. Extradite. Extradite, yeah. So they extradited 
uh, Uriah. And what did Jehoiakim do with Uriah? Killed him. Why are we told this? This is not the situation here. This is kind of saying, and there was this case back here with Uriah. So why do we want to know this right here? Stands in contrast to what just happened with Jeremiah. Yes. That's interesting in several ways. One is, does God always preserve the life of a faithful prophet? (laughs) And why did he let Uriah be killed and not Jeremiah? I don't know. Why in Acts 12 did God allow Herod to behead James and he sprung Peter out of prison and Peter wasn't killed? I don't know. There are times when it happens that way. There are times when one is killed. Remember the seven that were chosen to oversee the food service for the Grecian widows? Remember Stephen? Remember Philip? Stephen was stoned. Philip was still preaching in Caesarea in Acts 21 decades later. Why did God let Stephen be stoned? I don't know. But I'll tell you one thing it shows you. Jehoiakim's capable of doing some damage. It kind of shows you the threat against uh, Jeremiah was a real threat. I mean, you know, Jehoiakim has a track record of executing prophets he doesn't like. So it, it shows you God really intervened to spare Jeremiah. And uh, this wasn't just like, you know, Jehoiakim's never mad enough or, you know, bully enough to kill somebody. Thoughts and comments about the Uriah incident there? What else helps Jeremiah in verse 24? He's got a friend. Ahikam, yes. Who was a well-placed person. He had some influence from a very good family. And Ahikam helped Jeremiah. You know, he was kind of a high person in government that had some clout, and he was able to defend Jeremiah. Do you remember Shaphan, Ahikam, son of Shaphan? Anybody know anything about Shaphan? Or who he was associated with? He was in that story when Josiah found the book of the law. When they found it in the temple in Josiah's day. So he was an official of Josiah's. He was a very good, faithful, strong man. There are three brothers of Ahikam and one nephew that play into the Bible story. Two of his three brothers and his nephew were very good. He had one renegade brother in Ezekiel chapter 8. But for the most part, this was a really good family in a really bad moment. And so Jeremiah was not put to death. Now, that's nice. Hey, that's cool. Jeremiah wasn't killed. On the other hand, they didn't listen to him. (laughs) You know, so he survived to be ignored (laughs) when it's all said and done. Comments and questions on this uh, section, this story. So it makes the third prophecy against the city. Yes. They cite two other examples. It's almost like adding it up too. He's like, well, he's saying the same thing that two others have said. 
they sooner or later they ought to listen. That is a point that's very commonly made in the prophets that God sent you so many prophets over and over again. They kept telling you the same message. There's really no excuse. You know, if they didn't like one, God said various others. You know, the cumulative effect should have done something. Alicia. A lot of times we look at um, how, like, Uriah died and Jeremiah didn't. And um, Stephen was stoned and Philip wasn't and stuff like that. And we're like, well, that's not fair that they had to die. But, I mean, really, they got the better end of the deal. <laughs> Maybe it's not fair the one had to live. <laughs> yeah. And we need to remember that God gives us blessings in different ways. And for some of us, that is dying for him. And... We can't look at it and be like, well, that's not just, that's not fair, but... It's a very important point. You remember that conversation in John 21 with Jesus and Peter, and Jesus basically says, Peter, you know, you're going to die bad, (laughs) and things are going to happen to you that you don't want to happen, and Peter looks at John and says, what about him? Remember what Jesus said about that? None of your business. Exactly. If I wanted to remain until I come back, what is that to you? You follow me. You know, it's like, well, it's not relevant what God's going to do to spare somebody else. You do his will. God's got the rest of it in control. So we tend to feel sorry for ourselves. Oh, no. So and so, they didn't suffer like I'm suffering. You know, they got blessed better than I got blessed. Why, why, why? Well, I'm not them. God's got his reasons for whatever he does. I don't know what they are. Serve God. Doesn't matter if they got off easier than you did or they got more blessings or, you know, why did their kids turn out right and mine didn't? Why did they not lose their job and I did? You know, et cetera, et cetera. We're crybabies sometimes when we just need to serve the Lord. I don't know why, but I know what I need to do. And God's got the rest of it in, in, in his hands. Other thoughts or comments here on chapter 26? Okay, chapter 27, verses 1 through 11. 